Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody, it's Erin Carey, and today I am super thrilled to have Andy Wakefield on the podcast. And let me tell you a little bit about him. He has been likened to the Dreyfus of his generation. He is a doctor falsely accused of scientific medical misconduct, whose discoveries opened up entirely new perceptions of childhood autism, the gut-brain link, and vaccine safety. As an insider, the price for his discoveries and his refusal to walk away from the issue they raised was swift and brutal with loss of job, career, reputation, honors, colleagues, and country. And yet he enjoys a huge and growing support from around the world. Wakefield's stance made him a trusted place for whistleblowers from government and industry to confess and download. He has extraordinary stories to share. He is now an award-winning filmmaker Despite elaborate attempts at censorship, his documentary Vaxxed, From Cover-Up to Catastrophe, The Revelations of a Vaccine Scientist at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, changed the public mindset on the truth about vaccine safety. Wakefield's is a story that starts with professional trust in the instincts of mothers, choice and consequences, a quest for truth, and perseverance against overwhelming odds. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Erin, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am just, and I, and I got to say, like, if if people were to Google your name, right, search Wikipedia, you come up with some interesting responses and, and interesting, I consider you a pioneer in the gut-brain connection. And so that is one reason I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the, on the call, because we talk about that a lot on this show, is the gut-brain connection and how that's made a difference in my life and in my children's life. But a simple Google search brings up all sorts of other things. So can you maybe briefly share your background and how you even got to what you're doing now? Certainly. I'll try and give you a potted summary of, <laughs> okay. of, of many years. I, I came from five or six generations of, of doctors um, who trained at the same medical school, St. Mary's Hospital in London, part of the University of London. And I was entirely mainstream. I trained in surgery, became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, ended up running a large research team at the Royal Free Hospital, again, part of the University of London, looking at Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and the origins of those diseases. And in 1995, May the 17th, the mother called me and said, my child was developing perfectly normally. He'd met all his milestones. The doctor told me that he needed his vaccines. I took him to be vaccinated. He had his measles, mumps, rubella, which was given at, in isolation at that time. And um, he was never the same again. He slept for three days. He had a seizure. He uh, woke up a different child and lost his speech language. Um, he was incontinent. He, uh, he was finally diagnosed as autistic. And I said, I'm terribly sorry. Why are you calling me as a gastroenterologist? Because when I was at medical school, Autism was so rare, we weren't even taught about it. One in 10,000 children suffered from autism. And she said, well, my child has terrible gastrointestinal problems. I'm sure they're related to his behavior. And I believe the vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine triggered this problem. And so, and that there is an epidemic of this particular pattern of autism, regressive autism. And she was right on every count every single count. And when we, we started investigating these children, we realized that there was an explosion of this new syndrome of regressive autism. In other words, developmental regression and loss of skills in a previously normal child associated with gastrointestinal problems. And the fascinating thing was that when we treated the gastrointestinal problems, then not only did the bowel symptoms improved, the behavioral symptoms improved. The child started speaking, laughing, talking, 
acquired or reacquired the skills, many of which they'd lost before. Now, we didn't cure autism, but it made a dramatic difference. And being academics, we said that didn't happen. And so we did it 180 times, and it happened nearly every time. And, and then we said, yes, this is, this is for real. Now, the problem was that the parents had been absolutely right on every count. So when the mother said, my child regressed after a vaccine, I wasn't anti-vaccine. I took them along on time to be vaccinated. They had this vaccine, and this is the result. Then uh, because they'd been right about well, we, we had an absolute moral and professional obligation to report that, which we did. And of course, that was the beginning of the end of my career, because once you threaten the bottom line of the pharmaceutical industry, once you challenge public health and government dogma, uh, then you are in for an interesting ride. And there is no price that will not be exacted, particularly by the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and if anyone doubts that, then one only has to look at the recent experience with opioids. Anyway, um, I had a choice. I was faced with a choice. I either work for public health and, and the pharmaceutical companies effectively, or I work for the mother and child sitting across the desk from me telling the story. And that was an easy choice. That was a no-brainer, as people say. I was trained to put the patient before any other consideration. And nonetheless, the dean of the medical school, Ari Zuckerman, said to me, if you pursue this vaccine safety research, it will not be good for your career. And in as much as that he was right, here I am now. And now I'm a filmmaker and loving it. So I have no... And, it's, and I have to say, you know, I know grass. It's, it's been a privilege looking after these families. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I think in some ways... There was an element of fate, predestiny to what has happened. It was, it was something that needed to be done. Yeah, and, and I, I admire that. I think that certain people, I'm one of those people, we have this urge to speak up when we feel like something is just not right, right? Like I am very... I have a heart for anybody who's been marginalized, who has been cast aside by whatever culture says is acceptable or the norm at the time. And I, and I think that these mothers and their children fall into that category. And so I, I think you standing up for the mothers, for the patients is, is a, such a brave thing, like you said, in spite of so much opposition. And I, I will say, I, I find it fascinating, you know, digging into the gut brain connection, kids with autism and, looking at these um, inflammatory bowel conditions, I have a friend whose child regressed into autism when he was a toddler around 18 months old. And he's now part of a microbiota, uh, it's a transplant trial. Now he's part of a trial to transplant, transplant bacteria, I guess, from his gut. And I, I just wonder, is that becoming more well-known now that, that kids with autism do have more gut disturbances than other kids who are neurotypical? Oh, sure. Absolutely. When we started this work, the gut-brain connection was virtually unheard of. And we published a series of papers saying, look, there is a, not only are we one person, <laughs> no man is an island, but we have this um, extraordinary uh, interaction between the gut and the brain that is real, the for real. We are what we eat. And we, we know so much about that now, but at the time people laughed. You know, they said, this is ridiculous. You know, I know how the brain can affect the gut because, you know, if you're stressed and you get diarrhea or whatever, but not the other way around, that doesn't matter. Surely not. And so we, we wrote a series of papers on precisely how it could happen. They weren't exhaustive, but they did start this fascination with the gut-brain axis, which is now, as you know, widely, widely accepted. It's a hot topic in research and the microbiome. We now realize that we are nine-tenths bacteria, one-tenth human. You know, that our, our metabolism, our, our synthesis of, of various hormones, of vitamins, our immune system balance, our cognitive function, everything has a connection to what is going on in our gut and our gut health. So 
that was it was a very interesting time it was a challenging time but that's always the way in medicine when you're putting forward these these new ideas but there was no doubt that when you treated the gut in these children you made a material difference above and beyond just putting them uh, getting them out of pain and discomfort but um is it accepted now yes the most consistent and the most uh, frequent finding in autism research today is the link between the bowel and the brain. And at the time, you know, that was laughed at, uh, but now it is widely, widely accepted. And, and papers coming from Japan, Canada, Harvard, Yale, all over confirming not only our original findings, but extending those to uh, really look at the health, as you say, as you point out, now we have fecal transplant studies where we're transplanting healthy bacteria into children. This all began in Crohn's disease mm. and has now been transmuted, if you like, or moved into the field of autism research. So a very exciting time. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think we've seen so much in the last 20 years shifting in that direction, but I do think we have a long ways to go. And I do think hopefully this will open up more discussion and your film. And I hope I can say his name, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's a hard one for me to say who killed Alex Sportalakis. Is that right? Um, I watched that and wow, if that doesn't paint a picture of the gut brain connection in autism, I, I don't know what does. Like I encourage all listeners to listen, to go view this film because it really shows how the medical pharmaceutical industry failed this family because they were overlooking the gut brain connection. Can you speak a little bit to that? This was your first film, correct? Yes, it wasn't intended to be a film at all. What happened was we, uh, with Polly Tommy, um, I started making films well I, when I moved to Austin, Texas. And this was a three-part series of before, during, and after. So taking families broken by autism, the child, one child had autism, two children have, and healing that child or healing the child's gut, getting them properly medic medically investigated, and healing the family as a consequence. So it was a sort of before, during, and after type reality show. And we were asked to uh, look after a child in Chicago who was in four point locked restraints. He was in the intensive care or in the emergency room. He was naked, he was huge and angry and aggressive mm -hmm. and they were giving him more and more drugs. They gave him a, in the end, I think about 28 psychotropic drugs. Absolute disaster, a complete, um, if you ever needed proof of how poorly medicine understood autism and how to treat it, this is the, the film to watch. And every drug was given to offset the side effects of the last drug. And it was just a catastrophe. We took him to New York. We got him through the night in New York. We got him scoped. He had bowel disease. He was put on treatment. And, and things were going quite well. But the problem is that his wife, his mother, and her husband were estranged. And she had nowhere to live. So with the godmother and Alex, they would drive around staying in hotel and motel in, in Chicago. And every time this boy heard a siren... They were coming to take him away again, to lock him up, to chain him up, to drug him, and he would have a meltdown and destroy the room, and, and they were thrown out, and they'd have to move on. They were exhausted, and the next thing we heard is they were in a in Lutheran Hospital, pediatric intensive care. He was chained to the bed again. He was on three major, major tranquilizers, two intravenously, one intramuscularly, and still bending the bed frame. And um, we went to try and find somewhere safe for him to be recovered and during that week his insurance ran out so they took out his IV took off his restraints and put him on the street and a week later he was dead and he were, had been stabbed ostensibly by his mother who had then tried to take her own life as had his godmother they failed and we the next we heard they were in prison and it was an extraordinary story of the failure the abject failure of the medical profession to understand and treat autism and of a mother who loved her child so much that she could no longer bear his suffering and reach the end, just reach the end. And we decided we had to make a film about this and we did. And the interesting thing about it, which you may not know is that four years later, she was still in prison waiting to go to trial. And the, her lawyer, from Chicago called me and said, Andy, we've 
had a call from the state's prosecutor who is responsible for putting her in prison. And um, he said, I hear a film has been made about this. We want to see it. So I sent him my copy of the film. And two weeks later, he called me back and said, uh, having seen this film, we can no longer prosecute this case in the same way. She will be released from prison in two weeks time. Wow. And that was amazing. And that was the first time ever in, in American legal history, a film had had that kind of impact yeah. because the prosecutor realized this wasn't some crazy mother who hated her child and, you know, some mm -hmm. poor boy who was just, you know, mentally defective. It wasn't that at all. It was a completely different story. And without film, without the power of film to convey that message, that is the way it would have been and she'd have stayed in prison for life. So yeah. it's underlined to me the power of film. And, and so from that point forward, that was my that was my role is to bring people these stories, this truth in the form of film. None of that was to mitigate the killing of a child, none of that at all, or suicide. It was simply a factual story about what really happened. And and I think what, you know, to your point, it's powerful because gosh, we are so divisive these days, right? Like everybody is a pro or anti something, right? Pro vaccine, anti vaccine. And, and we're draw, drawing these divided lines in the sand, sand. And so hearing stories like that, I think it makes it humanizes us again, right? Like it appeals to that side of sympathy, empathy, whatever you like, all parents, all mothers have difficult decisions to make in regards to their children always, but maybe not to that extent. And so for me, it was powerful just because I do have friends with children who are struggling with autism. And I, it, it was just so I, I could go on and on. It was, it was really good. And, and the next one you did was Vaxxed, which I will say when I watched Vaxxed, I was extremely skeptical. This was years ago. And I wanted to prove, again, I had drawn that line in the sand and I wanted to prove those anti-vaxxers wrong, right? Like I, I thought they were crazy. I thought they didn't care about their kids. I thought that they were gonna make us all die of measles and <laughs> I, I didn't get it. And then I watched Vaxxed and you can explain a little bit better than I could, but I thought what was interesting to me is how I've always been concerned about the way that people of color have been treated in our country and the medical system and being used as guinea pigs and the Tuskegee, uh, is it the syphilis experiment, whatever that, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I know history, like I know that's happened, but I had never seen it portrayed in the way that it was portrayed in VAX. So I would love for you to give a brief rundown of that and what caused you to make that one. Sure, well, this is a story, this is a unique story in as much that it's the first time that insider from the CDC, from the Vaccine Safety Office, someone who is responsible for designing a study, conducting a study, collecting the data, analyzing the data, has come forward and said, we have committed fraud. And what happened was, I years ago, I presented to Congress, and then I met with the CDC, and I said, uh, this is back in 2000, I said, look, we believe that this vaccine is causing autism, clearly it's a minority of children, so why some, not others? We believe that it's the age of exposure. The younger you get the vaccine, the greater the risk of autism. And we know that, we, we believe that because the younger you have measles, if you have measles under one, you're more likely to have a serious reaction than the trivial disease you'll have if you get it after one. And so is it the same for the vaccine? And might that explain why it's not everybody, even though all children or most children get the vaccine? And to their credit, they went away and they tested that hypothesis and they did a big study and they found that is exactly what happened. And they found it in two groups. The first was one that they predicted. They said if MMR causes autism and its age of exposure, we should see this in children who were absolutely fine for the first year of life, and then something happened, something hit them and they went down. That's the group we should see it. And they found a very strong effect in that group, irrespective of race. The thing they didn't expect to find is that black boys were also at very high risk and they covered up both. What they did was systematically reanalyze the data to get rid of that effect fraudulently and then to destroy, go in at the weekend and destroy the offending documents 
Now, William Thompson, the whistleblower, realized that that was a federal offense, and he kept his documents, and he came to Brian Hooker, my colleague, um, uh, father of an affected child and a scientist from Northern California. And he said, we committed this terrible fraud. We've done a terrible thing. I can no longer live with this. And here is the data proving it. So we not only have the recordings of him admitting to that, but all of the documents from the time. And so we made, we were able to make this movie, which essentially accused these five scientists at the CDC of one of the greatest humanitarian crimes of all time, because their role, their job, their sworn duty is to care for the health of children in America. And what they did is deliberately, knowingly, and willfully put millions of children in harm's way, with many of them developing permanent, irreplaceable, ir irreversible neurological injury. And so we made a film, and we made it in the absolute confidence that we had all of the documents and that there would be no litigation against us afterwards. And that was the case. And so it was an incredibly powerful film, not least of which is it got into Tribeca Film Festival, Robert De Niro's film festival. And then three days later, well, a few weeks later, after we heard it had been accepted, which is fantastic, such a prestigious film festival, like, you know, Sundance and this sort of thing, or Cannes, it, we, it was censored. It was censored through pharmaceutical interests on the sponsorship side of the of the festival unheard of absolutely unheard of to censor a film from an independent film festival and then de niro had a change of heart and three days later went on to the morning news networks to talk about tribeca and all he wanted to talk about was the film that wasn't going to play and he was said we did the wrong thing everybody should see this film and it exploded worldwide here you have a situation where censorship backfired and had a global impact and suddenly vaxxed ignited this movement because people were able to see that it wasn't my opinion it wasn't del bigtree my producer's opinion or polly tommy's opinion it was fact presented by a senior scientist from the cdc who was responsible for the study and that was incredibly persuasive and they had no answer for it yeah, that is incredible. I don't think I knew all of those details. That is very interesting. And I and it has sparked a movement. And I think we've seen in 2020 the effects of censorship and how things can be twisted. Or, I mean, in my opinion, I don't use Google as a search engine anymore. I use DuckDuckGo, you know, because if I yeah. look up, like, for example, I looked up, um, I did it just as an experiment. I did a search of you on Google and then a search on DuckDuckGo, two very, very different things came up. And I think that's important for people to see. But I guess my question is, why the censorship? What is so dangerous about this message? What? I think the reason is this. There is the future of the pharmaceutical industry is in vaccines. And that is, if you read the Wall Street Journal, you'll see that. They expect a huge year-on-year -year return on vaccines. Mainstream medical products are somewhat broken. They're a bust. Things are going off patent. There's nothing really new in the pipeline. You can only sell such so much Viagra. And so it's going, that's where the future of the industry is. Now, at the same time, what we have is the global failure of vaccination. Despite what you hear, the truth is very different. Just yesterday, I got another uh, news headline saying CDC admit that, uh, sorry, World Health Organization admit that polio outbreak in Sudan caused by the vaccine. So we were told that we'd have you know, eliminated polio. Now outbreaks around the world are being caused by mutations that have come from the oral polio vaccine in those countries. And they are impossible to eradicate because you can't, you they're the vaccine strain themselves. And so we have a paralytic polio disease around the world, particularly in developed countries, that is being caused by assumptions, false assumptions made about the live polio vaccine. We have the um, pertussis vaccine. Now pertussis is coming back. Pertussis is sweeping through uh, communities where 100% of children have been vaccinated fully against pertussis. 
and the one expert uh, from Boston University in Vitasha said we made assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions. Uh, we did not understand how our immune system interacts with pertussis, we may have made some serious mistakes. So you have this admission. We've now got vaccine-resistant strains of measles virus emerging. We've got measles emerging in people who've had multiple vaccines. We've got the failure of measles vaccine. We've got Merck in court for the failure of their mumps vaccine, where they committed fraud to actually falsify the data to persuade the FDA that they should keep their license. So vaccines are a real problem just below the surface. They are really a major problem, but they're too big to fail. And so what we're seeing now is a comprehensive push against those who question vaccine safety. It doesn't matter whether they're mainstream physicians or scientists or Nobel laureates like Luke Montagnier or just mums and dads and people like me. It doesn't matter. Everyone is labeled anti-vaxxer because they cannot afford to fail. Their credibility, particularly at the CDC, is at an all-time low. And if, for example, the COVID vaccine were to fail or seen to fail, then there would be for them a nightmare because the public would completely lose confidence. And then we have a problem. And the trouble is they've only got themselves to blame for not being honest with the public. If they'd said, look, this vaccine is imperfect. It's causing a few problems. We're going to do our very, very best to improve it and compensate those who've been injured. The public would be very forgiving about that. But when you lie to the public and that's found out, then people will not be forgiving. And it's only themselves to blame. Yeah. So, so what would you say to somebody who hears that and says, well, we have a problem of, of vaccine hesitancy, right? Isn't that a, a threat that the World Health Organization has, has said? Like, maybe it's the anti-vaxxers who are causing these outbreaks. What do you say to that? <laughs> let me give you, okay, let me, let me give you measles. Measles is the rod that's often been used to beat the back of the public. Uh, we've got to have herd immunity. We've got to we've got to protect people. Measles um, in the 1920s was quite a, an important killer of children. 1,200 per million during epidemics were dying. Thereafter, in developed countries, there was a dramatic fall in case fatality rate. So that by the time the vaccines were introduced in the 60s, for example, there had been a 99.96 percent reduction in case fatality rate, and that trajectory downwards would have continued. And it was nothing to do with the vaccine. The vaccine didn't even come in at the time that was achieved. So the first scientific question is what would have happened if we'd not vaccinated at all? It would have decayed to zero. Measles was becoming a dramatically milder disease over a very short time span. Why? Because measles was tending to occur more and more and more in childhood. And measles in childhood is a trivial disease. The child's immune system is well able to deal with it. Measles during the first year of life or measles in older people is a more serious disease. But nature had developed a way of protecting, two ways of protecting us from that. The first was that children had lifelong immunity after one exposure. So they were immune for the rest of their lives. And so they were protected against getting measles at an older age. That was what natural infection did. Again, mothers who had had natural meals gave excellent transplacental immunity and breast milk immunity to their babies, and that protected them during the first year of life. So at that other critical window of susceptibility, the baby was protected. And so the mortality fell and fell and fell. Measles became a milder disease. The problem with vaccination is it doesn't work like natural infection. It does not produce protection for life. And so vaccination has made people more susceptible to measles at a later age when it's more serious. And so it has destroyed that element of natural herd immunity. At the other end of the spectrum, mothers who have been vaccinated do not give good immunity to their babies in utero and transplacentally. And so babies are no longer protected 
during the first year of life when they are born to vaccinated mothers. So vaccination has destroyed that element of natural herd immunity. So that effect of a 99.96% reduction in case fatality rate achieved by natural herd immunity has effectively been disrupted by vaccination. And we have laid ourselves open to measles as a more serious disease. That is a consequence of vaccination policy, not as a consequence of the concerns of those who question vaccine safety, the so-called vaccine hesitant. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really good. And I think, and you go, a lot of this, I mean, we're kind of tying it right into the new film, 1986, The Act. Um, some of this information is in there. But I, I guess my question too within that would be, you know how there's all this talk about um, antibiotic resistance right now, like we're not responding as well as we used to to antibiotics because we've got it in our food. We take them all the time. I mean, I know my kids have been on antibiotics way too much in their short lifetimes. Is this true? It sounds almost similar. Is this true for vaccines too? Because we've, we get them all the time. Our kids, I don't remember the number, you know, the number of how many they get before they're 10. Um, it's a lot. And are their bodies becoming resistant? Is there, a, you know, immune response? Is it changing? You're exactly right. I mean, it's very uh, observant. Yes, is the answer. And and antibiotic resistant bacteria are a, a very good analogy. You know, when antibiotics were first introduced with penicillin and sulfonamides, then they were a miracle. They were for if you know if you had battlefield gangrene or neurosyphilis or whatever you had, they or, or serious streptococcal infection, scarlet fever. Yes. They were a miracle, but the miracle turned to nightmare because nature doesn't stand still and man has a habit of interfering too much. And so what we did is exactly as you said, is we we would give antibiotics for ear infections that weren't ear infections and he's still complaining or crying and pulling his ear. So we're going to double the dose or change the antibiotic and no evidence of an infection any time in the first place. We put it in animal husbandry. It became widely used. And the, the consequence of all of this the inappropriate use of antibiotics is the emergence of resistant strains of antibiotics. So in less than 100 years, the medical miracle of antibiotics turned to a nightmare. And this is the terminology used by the public health authorities themselves. The post-antibiotic apocalypse is what they call it. And so we now have multi-resistant bacteria that are highly dangerous, and we have no way of treating them. And the pharmaceutical industry say, we are going to pull out of new antibiotic research and production, because by the time we get it to market, the bacteria are already resistant. So there's no point in wow. us doing So guys, you're on your own. So having helped create this problem, they're now walking away from the problem and people are gonna to have to deal with it. Now, in much the same way, we are seeing through the inadvertent use of vaccination, the emergence of resistant strains of bacterial viruses, as with pertussis as with measles. And this is because they induce an imperfect immune response against these organisms and allow, allow the emergence of new forms of organism uh, that are no longer responsive to the immune response induced by the vaccine. So that is the next problem we face. And it's not that they don't know this, they do. They do know it and they don't know what to do about it. They have no answer. The answer at the moment is, well, double the dose, give it again. It doesn't work. And it just makes the problem worse. But that's the only answer they have. So paradoxically, or ironically, you have on the market products that are hugely successful commercially, selling three, four, five doses, lifelong exposure, simply because they don't work. How, what other industry could succeed so well based upon its failure? Yeah, that's so interesting. And then even when you factor in going back, sorry, I got to do it going back to gut health, because that's where I typically go. Um, I you have to have a healthy gut to produce a healthy immune response. And I, there are very few people 
out there with healthy guts right now because of all of the other things that are going on, all of the other toxins that are thrown at us and stress. And right now we've got a pandemic of fear and concern and that breaks down the gut microbiome, right? And so I just think that we have a lot of things working against us to keep us from responding in the way that these things were intended to work, right? I mean, that, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. And, and the more we do, the worse it gets. So the, one of the greatest assaults on the gut is clearly glyphosate, something that was targeted against enzyme systems within microbes. Oh, it doesn't have, it doesn't affect human enzyme systems, so it's as safe as water. That was their advertising. Forgetting to mention that actually we are, you know, the bulk of our cellular composition is bacteria. Yeah. And uh, that we are dependent for our good health on uh, the, the, the health of our bacteria. And if you assault them with glyphosate, then you are in big trouble. And that is where we are now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I do want to make sure that we have time to talk about this new film. I'm so do I. Yes, doing all the questions because I just have so many things to ask you, but it's, it is very impactful. It's called 1986, The Act. And I watched it all at one time and I should not have done that because it's a lot of information and good information for sure, but I needed time to stop and process. So I will probably go back and watch in pieces. <laughs> um, so maybe you could explain a little bit about what your purpose was with that film and, and what, how, why it's beneficial. I was even sharing the last little bit of it. I had my mom watch with me because she is the generation where she went to school, got the polio vaccine, which is mentioned in there. And uh, I don't know if she, I think she got the real measles. I don't know if she got the vaccine for that, but it's just interesting because we are two generate two different generations and that film kind of goes through history. So I'll, I'll let you explain better than me. Yeah. I've been wanting to make this film for a long time and it, when we finished production, no one had ever heard of COVID. Um, but it is so pertinent to right where we are now. And it's a story about what I believe to be the core, at the core of a lot of the problems that we face right now with, with vaccination. And that was the passage of the 1986 Act. 1986, Ronald Reagan signed into law an act, the National Vaccine Injury Act, which removed the great majority of liability from the pharmaceutical companies for damage done by vaccines that they made that were on the childhood, the recommended schedule of the CDC. And that was an extremely dangerous move. The film really starts with how that came to be. And I won't dwell on that except to say it was one of the worst frauds that I've ever documented from the pharmaceutical industry that blackmailed, deceived and blackmailed Congress into passing this act. And it should be seen for that alone. What the act did was to give liability protection to the industry and a mandated market existed for their products. So they had the perfect business model. You were, your children were forced to get these vaccines or not go to school and they had no liability. They had no incentive for safety. All they could do was make a massive profit, and that is what they did. And then they were joined after the passage of the act by the federal agencies who did not want the act to succeed. They didn't want children to be compensated because every time a child is compensated for vaccine damage, it means vaccines can do that. And they didn't want anyone to know that, so they made it virtually impossible for children damaged by vaccines to be compensated, despite which the vaccine court, so-called vaccine court has paid out $5 billion in compensation, approaching $5 billion in compensation. So vaccine damage is real, it's acknowledged, the vaccine autism link is real and acknowledged by the government, and yet we are told something very, very different. And what the Act did was to make the drug companies so rich, so wealthy, that they could come to own almost everything. They came to own medical training, they came to own doctors, they came to own medical journals, they could decide what was published, what wasn't published, they came to own the media, they came to own politicians, policy makers, they came to actually write policy. And they became, and this wasn't just in America, in the US, because of this problem, this bad litigation, this bad legislation starting in the US, 
they globalized this policy so that vaccines were the future, the guaranteed future. They didn't care about the consequences. They were not interested in the consequences of mankind. And I know that I've dealt with these people for a very long time and one only has to read their documents to realize that. And if anyone is in any doubt about that, then on our website, 1986theact.com, where you can see the film, we've put the original legal discovery documents that had never seen the light of day, that were the reason they could not go to court and face a jury because they would have been bankrupted. And those documents show the nature, the character of the people with whom we're dealing. So if anyone has any doubts about the validity of the story, go to the website, download them, read them, and you will find they are actually worse than I have portrayed in the film. And so that has led, led us strangely to where we are now. So Barbara Lowe Fisher, the founder of National Vaccine Information Center, gave this outstanding speech at a rally in Washington in November of last year. And it predicted everything that we are going through now. Most people would say, oh, no conspiracy theory, no, no, no lockdown, no being banned from the supermarket or the movie theater or the game. Oh, no, no, that will never happen, not in this country. Well, we were wrong. And there it is. And so if you want to understand where we are with COVID and you want to understand we are, where we are going in future, then you must watch this film because it enables you to look into the past, into the looking glass of history and predict exactly where we're going next. I mean, even to the extent that in a 1970, 1976 scam pandemic with, with swine flu that never was, for which they rushed the vaccine to the market and gave the manufacturers the first liability protection, you have President Gerald Ford rolling up his sleeve to have an injection to convince the American public that it was worth doing. The vaccine was a complete waste of time. It was extraordinarily dangerous. It paralyzed and killed a lot of people and cost the American taxpayer hundreds of millions of dollars. It was a failure. And so look at the past, look at the history of this if you are able to understand where we are right now. Well, you know, depending on who you're talking to, the past has been rewritten a little bit or revised. So I think that that is one concern. But yeah, I, I, it's interesting you mentioned that there are a lot of things that are going on right now that a year ago we were told were conspiracy theories. And so I, I'm kind of at the point where I'm just like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what's next? Just bring it on. New conspiracy but, because all mine have come true. So I yes. need a new, I need a, a real conspiracy theory. Seriously, I need I need a new one. That is that is such a good point. Um, yeah, I, I think that, and for anybody who's listening, and I do want to speak to this because there might be somebody who's listening and going, I can't even believe that we're having this discussion, that we're talking about this. I don't agree with this at all, and I can't get past, you know, what I believe in, and that's totally fine because. I, I want to have open-minded conversations with people just because that's how I grow as a person. And I think that it's so important for us to be able to have these conversations because again, when we draw that line and we start just shouting out dehumanizing terms, anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, whatever it is, we fail to connect with each other the way that we were intended to connect. And so I think you don't have to believe anything that Andy is saying here, you don't have to believe anything we're talking about, but go prove them wrong. You know, like, like I did many years ago, I just wanted to prove some people wrong. And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole and found all of this extremely fascinating. So I, I just thank you for everything you're sharing. And it, it's, it's very important. So what, what can people do now? How can people empower themselves to bring attention to some of these things? Well, you're, you're quite right. Education is the key. And, and once you go down this rabbit hole, there's no coming back. And the reason I put this story, the narration of this story, in the hands of two prospective parents, a young couple expecting their first baby, is to make it relatable. The husband saying, yeah, what about polio, walking out and slamming the door like that's the end of the conversation. I don't want to listen to this. And the mother knowing intuitively that there is a problem. Not saying I'm not going to vaccinate my child, but educating herself, deferring to the science, deferring to the law. What is the truth? And getting to the bottom of it. And so the parents unearth the story. They are us. And now we care as an audience. We want to know more. 
because they are relatable to us. And and she defers to the science and she reads it and she comes to her conclusion. Now, you're quite right. If people don't want to do that, if they don't want to do their research, which I strongly recommend they do, you don't have to. Health freedom is the key. If you choose a COVID vaccine, that's absolutely fine. That's your choice. But don't impose your choice on other people because a lot of people have done the research. They're, they're a very highly educated public out there that knows a great deal about this issue. You only have to listen to Bobby Kennedy speak or Dell speak or many of the mothers, Sherry Tempany. You realize there is a, a huge knowledge base out there. So you can dismiss it. Of course you can. You can walk away from it. Of course you can. That is your prerogative. But please don't force people who have investigated this, who have understood and who have come to different conclusions to vaccinate themselves or their children because there is no compensation. There is not going to be no, you are on your own. Even though there is ostensibly a compensation program in place for COVID, it's going to be virtually impossible because you as the parent or the injured party are going to have to prove causation. That is completely the wrong way around. You are having to prove causation. You don't have a laboratory. The CDC and the drug companies have rushed this to market and denied you the science to prove it with. So you cannot win. So going into this decision, please know the facts because it may change your life. Yeah, there's an interesting quote from the film that you mentioned, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he says this, he says that failure to believe these women who have witnessed their children suffer injury or, or have experienced regression, that's not science. This is, this is not science, this is misogyny. And I think that that is such an important point to make is that we can't just shut somebody down because, oh, your experience isn't true. It's not real, you know? And it's, it's a totally different, I don't know. I think that the word science is changing and I think it's being thrown around in a way that maybe it wasn't ever intended. And so I, I think that that was very impactful for me when, when I was watching that as well. Science is about asking questions and attempting to answer them as accurately as possible. That's what science is. And um, yeah, no, the people I've found most informative, most useful to me have been those who have taken the trouble to educate themselves, not those who've run away in horror, the belief that the drug companies or the government don't do anything but love us and want to see the best for us. I'm afraid that may not be the case. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And I think that it's, it's good to have a healthy bit of skepticism, you know, and to stand back and assess. So I, I'm going to ask you one last question that I ask all my guests. And, you know, the podcast is called Sparking Wholeness. And so if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? For me, it would be the thing, the guiding light for my medical career. And it was the first time I was ever told and I went on to a medical ward by a junior doctor who was teaching me as a medical student. He said, the most important thing you will ever hear is the first thing that the patient tells you about the origin of their problem. And when you stop listening to that, you turn around and you walk off this ward and you never come back. And I have lived my medical career and my scientific career, trusting in the intuition of mothers. It is an extraordinarily powerful force. And it is the reason we are on this planet now. We're not here because of doctors, men in white coats, antibiotics, vaccines. We're here on this planet because of maternal intuition, the innate knowledge of a mother when her baby's ill, when they're well, what's right for them, what's wrong for them. And so many of them are persuaded or have this eaten out of them by doctors. You know, you're just a mum. I know your child better than you do. I trained at medical school where I did a day's study on vaccine safety. Really? Really? Is that it? Um, and you're pitted against some evolutionary biology tool that has been with us for millions of years? <laughs> I don't think so. So I trust enormously in the innate wisdom of 
mother's maternal instinct. Why? Because those two entities, the mother and the baby, were once one, and they are inseparable. And they will always be inseparable. And just because we do not understand the precise mechanism of that understanding, that interaction, doesn't make it any less real. So, mothers, please defer to that inner authority. Do not defer to an external authority that doesn't know your child, um, because it is such a powerful force. And as I say, is I believe the reason we are here today. I love God's that. So, so good. Thank you so much. So where can people go to get your films? I know that there is a holiday special going on right now um, to watch all three, right? To, or to get all three. So maybe you could direct them to your website and the, the new film website and everything so people can access that. Please, yes. Go to 1986theact, 1986theact.com. And there you can stream the film, you can download the film, you can buy the DVD. And we've packaged up the three films, Vax, Spordalakis, and uh, 1986, The Act, into one. So give it to your skeptical relatives as a, a Christmas present, as a holiday present. Don't get into a fight with them. Have fun. <laughs> Just say, I want you to watch this because it raised really interesting questions and I value your opinion. Let them go through that process. Don't get into a fight. Have fun this Christmas. And uh, if that's if you're allowed to gather anyway. And, right. um, and uh, yeah, um, otherwise have a wonderful holiday season and um, let us hope that next year brings fresh hope and enlightenment. Don't, don't live in fear. Never live in fear. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.